what's going on everybody welcome back to my social life this is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media i'm your host jacob kelly as always today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. and before we get into today's episode of the social report there's a couple things that we need to go over first Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews you get, the more it helps the people find the show. And it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I am very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. I put out a brand new interview every single Monday and a brand new takeaways episode where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. We put out a brand new episode of The Social Report on the final Friday of every single month. Last but not least, there's going to be a little bit of an audio issue with this podcast. I pulled the most rookie of rookie mistakes and my mic did not pull out of my usual podcasting mic. It pulled from my computer mic. So I apologize that my audio quality is a lot lower than it normally is, but that wasn't going to stop me from putting out this podcast because I felt we really had a good rhythm and flow. And this is one of our better episodes of The Social Report ever. So there's no way I wasn't releasing this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, let's get to this month's episode of The Social Report. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And today is an episode of The Social Report. And The Social Report is a monthly podcast in conjunction with TrueFan, where we sit down and break down some of the most interesting social media stories over the last 30 days. As always, today I'm joined by Chief Growth Officer TrueFan, Scott Birdie, and Chief Marketing Officer Karen O'Brien. I'm very excited to have you both back on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Karen. How are you? Doing awesome. I mean, I think uh, this is the first podcast that marks post-election era, right? True. Yes. That's true. I mean, I think we're all still celebrating a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. And so, where I want to start today. I actually don't have any election stories, believe it or not, but where I want to start today is with an article I read called Social Media Innovation is Dead. And so the author of this article is Christopher Stokel Walker, and he's written a book about YouTube, and he's a, he's a journalist from the UK. And essentially what he's saying is that in many ways, social media is a mature marketplace with little innovation and all the big players just keep copying each other, and that's it. And I have a, a kind of excerpt here from the article to Fleets is Twitter version of LinkedIn Stories, which launched worldwide last month. LinkedIn Stories is the show network's version of YouTube Stories, which launched in 2017. YouTube Stories was its version of WhatsApp statuses and Facebook Stories, which popped up earlier in 2017. After we were given Instagram Stories, which rolled out in August 2016, which in turn was Instagram's version of Snapchat Stories. And we're seeing that happen again now with TikTok this year. Obviously, TikTok dominated. And I think part of the reason it did dominate this year was it actually did bring forth some innovation. It was a new platform, a new way of presenting content. But now we're seeing obviously Instagram Reels, uh, YouTube Shorts, and actually just recently, I think it was this week that Snapchat fully rolled out their Spotlight feature, which is essentially if you swipe as far as you can to the right on Snapchat, they have a TikTok-like feed within Snapchat now. So we're starting to see everyone just copy the TikTok feed. So I'd love to know the, your opinion is do you think that social innovation is dead or are we just in a bit of a weird spot? Like, or has this social media, has it hit maturity? Like, I'd love to know what you think around this. Aaron, please lead this off. I'm really eager to say, hear what you have to say. Um, I do think social innovation is, is going through a dry spell. 
in that they keep copying each other. And I wish what they would start doing is actually listening to users versus either copying the competition or creating new features that are more native to brands, right? Like who, who's paying their advertising revenue? Example, great example, Twitter. How many years have users been asking to be able to edit their tweets? That's not gonna, it's not gonna benefit brands. It's not gonna do anything for their competition, but it would make users really happy. And I feel like that's kind of the path that most social networks need to go down again if they wanna continue their growth and you know their monthly active users is really listen to what users need. Um, and I think, you know, people like Craigslist is a great example for, you know, a decade Craig Newmark built out Craigslist and people would ask him, like, why don't you take ad revenue or why don't you do this or that for brands? And his response was always like, I don't think our community wants that from us. And I think that's kind of the position and strategy that if social networks started going down, things would be a lot more innovative because users know what they want. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to your point about like kind of building on user experience and what users who are in the market really want. I think it's like interesting to note, you know, maybe a website like Reddit, for example, that has a lot of social and engagement uh, components, but is really sticking to a certain focus um, and a certain value proposition that it offers their users and honing in on additional value that's not, you know, normal, I guess, feature ads um, that their users want rather than moving it into more of a generalist type of position, right? And, and to your point, I mean, like, I think part of people looking at this space and seeing the lack of innovation is not really having eyes on the insides of, you know, bigger brands, um, what's actually happening where the strategy is being made, right? And there's a, like from my preview, uh, there's a lot happening for some of the bigger brands, bigger CPGs and stuff like that out there, um, starting to make really pivotal shifts in their sort of agency strategies and bring some of that work more in-house. Um, Karen, you actually referenced in a CMR article that in 2021, you're going to see a lot more media buying teams come in-house. So I think with maybe the lack of innovation from a front-end standpoint, like what we're seeing as users and what we're exposed to, um, there's certainly like innovation happening behind the scenes from a strategic level and how you know, users, whether it be influencers and creators uh, or brands are using those platforms and, and, and I guess seeing what's trending or what trends are taking place, you know, i.e. lower organic engagement on Instagram and TikTok and how they can kind of combat that with um, different data points and things to measure effectiveness internally. So like it didn't necessarily answer the whole thing or like is social media innovation dying? But I think that the innovation is happening not so much on the platforms, but on a strategic level um, by users. And that really links back to your point around like, hey, I don't think users are necessarily seeing what they are hoping to see um, in terms of additions to these platforms. I think in terms of the copycat effect, uh, like I started to notice that you know, two years ago using LinkedIn a fair bit and, and really seeing that rather than defining a bit of a path for themselves after the acquisition um, with Microsoft, they really just started to mimic and comp like copycat the stuff you'd see on Facebook you know, Instagram and, and other social media platforms, which was super interesting to me because it meant like, hey, like we're more interested in competing um, against these other social platforms that have innate value for their users 
than we are, you know, differentiating, I guess. Um, and I thought LinkedIn as a, as a platform for one example, had a really good opportunity to differentiate and kind of build with their own community of creators and such. So I find it like really surprising to see, you know, t- Twitter coming up with stories and those types of things and kind of naming these things differently, because obviously there's no IP involved at this point, like with, with what they're coming out with. Um, so I'm not really sure how they plan to gain users, like, or like what the trade-off is there. You think though that it's that some of those features become so core to some of the net social networks like Facebook, for example, that then there's an expectation that they will just be everywhere. It's true. And I mean, I guess maybe you can tell me, is there programs like Hootsuite and Spread Social that are now doing like uh, multi-story publishing, or maybe this is like kind of an area that they're now getting into, but I think like if, you know, all social platforms all of a sudden do have stories, then it's kind of like you can recycle content more effectively. But like right now, it just seems like such a hassle for creators, for brands. Like, you know, if my sweet spot, let's say it was like TikTok, I'm really not going to be that like prone to go to Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. I mean, I guess some people are taking those steps and I'm sure you've seen that, Jacob, but it's a lot of, a lot of manual time spent. I don't know. A lot of manual time. And like, that's the thing where it's like, when it comes to, from a creator's perspective, or even a brand's perspective, depending on the size of your team and the amount of people running your social channels, it's like, how do you check off all the boxes to be on every single platform? Or should you just kind of narrow in and focus on one platform and do that one platform really well instead of a half-baked strategy, half-baked social strategy that's just kind of like a one-size-fits-all for all platforms just to say you're there. And I think just personally, I think it'd be best to just focus on the one platform and actually own one platform. Uh, I know Gary Vee has the words like 80, 20%. So he focuses as much of his efforts on 80% and experiments on the other 20. Like I understand that. So you're not just leaving them completely exposed on the other platforms. But I think that you should focus on one platform over the other instead of like in doing it well, as opposed to doing the other them halfway. Um, I thought just kind of anecdotally too, when it comes to this, I've with the copycat effect and a lot of these social platforms feeling very similar at this point, I just don't, I just kind of feel burnt out with social media as a whole. Like I don't feel excited or just like when I'm on a platform, there's not really a purpose, like per, like on, a, on my personal time, of course, like I don't feel excited to open any of the platforms because they're all the same. I kind of have a little, feel a little burnt out opening them because there's nothing fresh and new for me to kind of consume. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I mean, people, or like my girlfriend will always say, um, you, know, you always watch the TikTok videos that are like recycled onto Instagram type thing. It's totally true. Like I'm not really interested in opening up TikTok and, and then, you know, frankly, scrolling across the same type of videos that were super popular on TikTok on Instagram. I'll just see what's popular and stick with Instagram because... Yeah, it's your point. You just start seeing the same content, the same kind of remarks, same engagements and stuff like that across platforms. And it's like a number, I don't know, it creates way too much of a numbers game rather than like who can be creative and like who can stand out more, you know? One final thing on that though is like with Twitter, for example, I felt like when Twitter started to introduce a lot of visual elements to their platform that they didn't have before, even starting with Periscope, right? Remember they had an integration with Periscope for streaming? I would say like they started to move away from the core of what Twitter is, which is the water cooler conversation. The conversation started to get sort of demoted. And so I think that's the danger if, with everybody taking on everyone else's features is that you're, you're moving away potentially from where your core is. Like imagine if Instagram all of a sudden had tons and tons of features that were no longer visual. I mean, I think of them as the visual platform. 
I totally agree. I mean, that's what I really noticed with LinkedIn was they were carving out this very, you know, powerful and connected um, series of niches amongst the business communities and such and industry communities. And all of a sudden by, you know, opening these features up to a little bit more of a native social crowd, right? Like people who aren't necessarily interested in that community, but more interested in just building their own followers or following, whatever. You start to move eyes away from what people are there to actually read because their algorithm starts to cater more towards, I guess, like visual content or whatever you want to call it. That's, you know, frankly, just crap. It's like stuff you've seen on Instagram like years ago. And then, oh, now it's like apparently LinkedIn's giving me great organic reach. I'll just post crap to earn okay, followers. So we would be remiss here if we did not mention that the, the sort of UX rebrand that all social platforms seem to have all done at the same time. And they all sort of started looking the same. Did you they notice did. that? They did. Yeah, the wireframes and stuff. Yeah. And they all started looking like MySpace, honestly. How did that happen that they all kind of rebranded at the same time? like the similar cover photos and like positioning and stuff. Yeah. I don't, I really, I don't know. There's some like weird social circle of excellence or something where those people are collaborating. <laughs> I swear. I felt like it was a step back. Honestly, I didn't think it was a good UX step forward. So. Maybe we're coming into an innovative era. Who knows? Maybe we're going back to MySpace. Maybe it'll come back. I mean, honestly, on this note, like that you're bringing up in terms of differentiation, there, there was one story that I was, you know, just planning on kind of talking about. It's not so much an article or anything that I found, but um, maybe we'll just kind of lead into it. I, I think reverting back to TikTok, where this kind of, you know, your point began around like, hey, differentiation, but then copycatting you know, those TikTok style videos. TikTok has really carved out a space for themselves right now. And like, they're full steam ahead with one of, I mean, like one of the greatest marketing efforts, whether it's actually like tangible or not, that I can see. Cause like you got people like Will Smith. And I mean, this is one that stands out over the past month to me, you know, a lot of social media craze around the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion, but Will Smith on Instagram, where he's just like, you know, a God talking about making TikToks, like using TikToks, like you would ketchup, you know, for tomato sauce or something like that. And, and to me, like carving out a space where you're referring to a certain type of video now that we've just talked about is on every platform essentially but they're referring to it as your brand like as the platform i, I want to know what you guys think about that and like if you know maybe as a result of the dying innovation we really could see tiktok um start to differentiate and really go down that path as to how they can add value to their specific users because they seem pretty intent on like serving that community of creators well i mean just in terms of serving the community of creators, they have their creator fund, which I believe is a billion dollars that they have just specifically to reinvest into their their community. And one thing interesting in terms of TikTok kind of carving out a niche is I feel like they're kind of at the forefront of a lot of conversations as opposed when it comes to culture now. So many things are starting on TikTok. And even so, just like kind of on that note too, just again, this is a very small sample size, but a majority of our topics for this conversation, I know like Karen's got one coming up. I have another one coming up. A lot of our most interesting news and stuff that stood out to us from social media is coming from TikTok right now. And I just think that's really interesting how they were starting to see that shift where it's starting to become a lot of these trends culturally are coming from TikTok. So you think TikTok has really surged because they made it easier for people to create? I mean, honestly, like I felt like that was what Instagram did well in their day. 
they made it easy for somebody to upload a photo and then basically, you know, really amplify that and showcase it in a beautiful way. The filters, we didn't have filters before, right? Like there was a lot of things about the way Instagram allowed you to upload your photos and make them really beautiful and, and expressive. And I think that that's what TikTok's done with video, the licensing of music, the filters, the special effects, the, you know, the, the two-way stuff that they have going on. Like they just, they made it easy for the average person. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and then you see that because people are saving their TikTok videos and, you know, resharing those. And I think that to me is maybe the first step that links towards uh, that crazy potential idea of like, you no longer refer to one minute videos or 15 second videos as videos or like short snippets or whatever. You just start calling them TikToks. Like, is the, are those the sorts of like footprints you start to leave if you're TikTok in order to create that sort of dialogue, Karen? I mean, I, I know this isn't something that's easy to do, like to kind of create that ketchup style brand. But like, do you think that they're slowly trying to leave those types of footprints to create that for themselves? I do, because they made it easy to, to basically publish out to, to Facebook and Instagram, right? Mm. Very few other platforms. I'm trying to think if anyone has ever done that, except within the Facebook ecosystem. You know, they made it easy to do that. And I think they're building a great brand too. They used to be called ByteDance. Not such a good brand compared to TikTok, in my opinion. <laughs> so you know, yeah, I think so. I think I think that we'll we'll probably continue to have that videos be synonymous with the word TikTok, right? Yeah, let's try and talk about this a year from now and see, like, hey, are people still talking about TikToks? <laughs> yeah, I imagine they will. I think, like to your point, Karen, too, like they make it easy to share and they're all branded, so you know where they're coming from yep. when it comes to TikTok. And with so many of them, and to your point too, with them being making it easy to create, that means that with the more people that are creating, the more likely that something's gonna go viral on another platform. First, so just the sample size increases, the more likelihood that a piece of content is gonna go viral. Once it goes viral, it's obviously gonna hit all the other platforms, which continues to grow their brand exponentially. Yeah, that branding is is pretty important, like that watermark that goes on to other onto other social platforms. Like I've seen some uh, YouTubers who focus in the beauty beauty vertical on nails, seeing their videos, their TikToks show up in other places, like in ads that they never gave permission to have them in. And you can clearly see their watermark, their TikTok watermark on it. Yeah, that's another interesting conversation is like how that will transcend through like IP or people's, you know, kind of own copywriting or creativity. I, I came across like a, an ad for some course this morning and, you know, Canadian I, I'm not going to like throw out names and stuff like that, but like somebody, you know, from Canada and, um, launching a course of sorts, but like certainly not too many surfers. Like you see the surfboard behind me or whatever in Canada and like maybe like <laughs> within his network or privy, but like when you see, you know, you're like putting together those clips and then there's like one of the most professional surfers in the world. And you've taken a clip from an actual movie that was shot by, you know, one of his videographers, that type of stuff starts to get a little bit crazy where like, there's so much usage of content that isn't owned by the people who are actually like publishing it and selling through it. I, I, I felt a little bit offside on that one. It's like, these are like amazing ocean shots. Like, I don't think those are yours to just be like throwing or splashing into a video. We all know that commercial use brings up a whole different set of rules. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, because I know if you're doing like commentary, there's like you're allowed to use other people's stuff as long as you're in commentary or something around it. But using it directly to that is kind of, not 
I don't know. I don't think that's legal. Yeah, that'll catch up with them. Decisions, decisions. (laughs) But speaking of TikTok too, Karen, you were talking last month, I believe it was last month, we talked about 420 Dogface 208 or whatever his name is and how well Ocean Spray handled that moment being thrust into the cultural spotlight. And this month you kind of have a brand that a brand that reacted to it in the opposite fashion. And I wonder if you could share that story. Yeah, I came across this story of an Ohio University student um, who was working for Sherwin-Williams part-time. And he was working there three years. And um, his name's Tony Pilicino. Pilicino? I hope I pronounced his name correctly. But if you want to go check him out on, on TikTok, he's Tonister Paints, P-O-N-E-E-S-T-E-R Paints. Um, he has 1.4 million followers. And he started basically doing TikToks at his work part-time while he's mixing paint for people. And they were getting tons and tons of views. And then he started just, you know, randomly mixing things that people would ask him to mix together. And he would buy the paint himself with his employee discount. And he thought, you know, wow, you know, I'm really getting a lot of traction. I should reach out to Sherwin-Williams and let them know that they have a younger audience who is interested in this kind of content. And maybe we can do something. And so he put together a PowerPoint presentation and sent it in, no response. Three months later, got a response back basically saying, like, we don't have any promotions going on, so we probably don't need to talk. And they just kept ignoring him. Now, the key here, in my opinion, is to get to the bottom line, which is they ended up firing him. As opposed to Ocean Spray or Walmart or tons of different brands that we could, you know, point out have embraced their employee creators and really work with them for the brand. I mean, look at Cameron from Walmart, right? Like I literally started going back into Walmart because I love Cameron's videos. And every time I walk into a Walmart, I hope that I will see somebody like Cameron maybe making a TikTok. Um, And they fully embraced him and they loved that. Um, And Ocean Spray, I mean, that, that was just phenomenal. They saw unprecedented PR and a rise in their sales to the point where they gave the guy a truck. So I just, I'm kind of dumbfounded as why they would you know, fire this guy. But um, I just saw on his TikTok three hours ago that he was offered a job by a company yes. called Florida Paints. I, I, I mean, I was just going to say, like, this is just the priming up for the most ultimate opportunity. Another paint company, little known to step in there and boom. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the guy's already got an audience, right? That loves paint. So um, I'm really happy. He doesn't have to probably work at a store anymore. I mean, like, focus but he's on going the to. Creative. I think is he's he going to like be in the store. He's moving to Florida, and he's he's basically taking a job with them. So good for him. I'm happy for him. Um, but I think the lesson here is really like, if you're a brand and you have an employee creator that is enthusiastic about your brand and builds an audience for you, that's kind of a no brainer that you should work with them. You can access a new audience that you normally would not have access to in a very authentic way and a great way to make your employees feel closer to your brand as well. I feel like a lot of brands would kill to have an employee creator with that many followers and also that many followers creating content about their product. It's not just like someone that worked for Sherwin Williams that was like a gaming YouTuber, but he was like a creator advertising their products in his videos and getting millions of views. And they still like, that is something brands would literally kill for. And they were like, absolutely not. Basically it's like, you know, dust the counters when you have nothing to do or create a TikTok video that's going to attract many, many people who don't currently paint 
use your product, whatever it is, and make them more aware about how great that product can be for their own wants and needs and rooms and whatever. Um, yeah, this is just frankly shocking to me, especially like I tend to like look at the tech side, you know, of this equation too, and and some of the past experiences I've had um, working. And one of the main problems I noticed in a uh, smaller SaaS company that I was helping a couple of years ago was their employee engagement. Like it, just to get employees to willfully engage, even like not share content, engage with the actual company's content and things like that is like pulling needles oftentimes. And so when you're blessed with a person who's like going outside of that to just start like literally creating you professional content. I mean, the guy's more than a million Handing followers. It to you. <laughs> like, and paying with for a bow. it. Yeah. We, and, and paying for that. That part really threw me off where he was actually buying the paint with his employee discount. Um, but like, I mean, not only is it a free channel, you're willing to fire them, lose out on that free media spend. Well, I have, I have a theory him go about to it. A, go, yeah. See him go to a competitor um, where they can now just roast Sherwin-Williams for the coming months. I mean, especially people are going to be talking about this incident on, I'm sure we're not the only podcast and this has probably made some local news networks and stuff. It's just, I mean, it's just got to be devastating for that brand. Like, they deserve it. I, I have a theory about it. I'm going to write a, write a blog post about it. <laughs> but I, I think that corporate communications is where social goes to die, honestly. Like, I think that is part of the issue, is the organization in this company of where social was sitting, you know, because they were reaching out to him, looking for him to do, what was he doing wrong? They were looking for like, did you pay for the paint? When were you doing it? You know, were people working with you at the time? Were you on working hours? None of it was around, hey, how are customers, you know, Responding engaging with us? Uh, yeah, like, it's just. I, I think that is that is part of the problem is that in general, corporate communications does not usually tend to be an empowering place for social. I'm wondering if there's any office politics involved. I'm just searching up how many followers do they have on their other social channels? And is this one like retail employee getting better results than their whole marketing department is collectively in office politics? We could actually or? tell that from our tool, but we probably won't waste our time going there. Yeah, he's got a Sherwin Williams says 289,000 followers on Instagram. So he over he about 5x'd their following on TikTok by himself. Um, so again, but that just goes back to the power of TikTok, right? And you don't need fancy gear. You don't need a team. You can have one guy mixing paint and explode. But it didn't have the polished corporate communications message that some companies are looking to have, which I would guess was the issue. I never would have thought, you know, that like there could be like a, a Black Friday or Cyber Monday sort of special, like that drives tons and tons of paint sales. But the way this thing is lining up, if this guy is in Florida by this weekend, I mean, I'm sure that he could drive likely more than a year's salary <laughs> for what they were paying him at Sherwin Williams in sales and probably close to a week. Well, like, I'd I, invite I him to come. Happens. I'd invite him to come onto the podcast and talk about his story. I'd love to hear what he's doing in Florida and so we'll see sweet. if he responds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That'd be awesome. I mean, like they could even just leverage him, like showing you how to mix paints at home and just create fun colors on your own. Like that would just drive people trying to experiment with paint. Like 
you could have people buying it beyond just when they need to paint their homes. Like you're creating another way to use their product and they didn't take advantage of that. And that's where you can even take that engagement to another level, right? Like, um, not a TikTok expert, but I've seen re- like how people create reply videos or whatever. Like they'll kind of post a, a comment or whatever. And people are really into the comment section, it seems, on TikTok as well. Like, it's like, oh, I see something I like. I, I got to check the comments. Like it's better than Instagram, so to speak. Um, but like at that point, you have the opportunity to not just engage with the audience, but start to pick out specific customer questions, specific um, creative interests on behalf of your customer in the industry, like, and, and hone in on tailoring more of the customer experience through literally replying and engaging with those, like, anyways, so I guess we could go on brands, and on. Yeah, brands, if you have an employee creator on TikTok that wants to create content for you, I would highly advise that we would all highly advise that you work with them. Or maybe proactively just go out and create some TikTok guidelines or something. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a fan of like guidelines, so to speak. Well, I like guidelines. I don't like policies because I think policies tend to be, you know, disempowering versus empowering. And to your point, Karen, like if you look around, in fact, it's in one of the articles I was going to talk about next. Um, There's a couple of emails that I was reading up on this week from uh, Nick Sharma, who's, you know, DTC and CPG God. Love Nick Sharma. Yep. Um, podcast and, alumni. And yeah, podcast alumni as well. I know we've had him on here. And uh, yeah, he, you know, he mentions a number of things that relates to how people are using influencers and also just kind of talking about Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Um, and I thought about, you know, those two subjects be good to talk about, like, how do we think influencers are going to be used in a big way leading up to Black Friday and on Cyber Monday, um, et cetera. But I think on that point of how he has seen in his experiences throughout influencers, that strategy work the best. It's non-guideline. It's, you know, kind of like creating the value proposition ultimately, I think is how he explains it and allowing them to do everything that it is they do well, which is the creation, the editing, you know, the distribution of it. Like you can obviously come to some forms of agreement on that, but why not let the people who know their audience and who know how to build it run with the type of content that they expect to work? Um, so that's an interesting point to bring up, I think, yeah. Well, because they're bringing their audience, right, to the table. I think that's the key. So there's an expectation that they're going to continue to be themselves even when they're promoting your product. Yeah. But I would I would say I absolutely love what Nick did, which was he sent like over 100 bottles of hint water to this one influencer like he kind of got her attention pretty quickly yeah and wasn't yeah. she a lacroix drinker yeah, sarah, sarah dici <laughs> i yeah, mean that's that's he, that's that's og right there it is it is i mean like he, he is i would have to say like an og in that space but uh kind of like kind of like you karen um she was also it says she was also a lacroix drinker so i personally enjoyed her calling out lacroix for never being supportive of creators whereas we were Yep. It's like something that could happen to Sherwin Williams. You know? uh, could, <laughs> could actually happen. Yep. <laughs> but with that specific influencer, I've heard him tell that story before. And what they ended up doing now is really smart. So he gave her like the creative freedom to create the video she wanted. But what they did then was they took that content and they ran it as an ad from her account to her followers. So of course it's like clearly an ad and everything, but it looks relatively organic in the feed and it looks like the content they're used to seeing. So it's a more engaging ad 
coming from someone they're used to seeing in their feed. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant to make it part of their deal where their ads are running from her account and not hits. I've seen some dating apps do that really well. Um, actually, like a, a more alignment, obviously, with like not coming from a brand and actually seeing it through somebody's like life and what they're sharing. Um, but yeah, to, to your point, uh, <laughs> they did a lot of things that were like interesting too with the content. I know that he's t- he speaks about how two influencers they worked with on YouTube. Um, they also tried to drive direct traffic. They didn't see the type of return that they may have expected. And so they, they repurposed the video from one of them into an editorial piece. And that actually ended up driving more traffic. So, you know, even like thinking about your distribution channels and if the first option doesn't always work, it's not like it's been a failure. You got to kind of think deeper around like, who are we trying to reach and where can we reach them most effectively to kind of create that emotion, right? That we're looking for, I think, as a brand. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that distribution strategy piece for social, particularly with influencers, I think hasn't been given enough traction by marketers. I've had, you know, influencer videos that I put out in social that did okay, but originally shot them in Super HD and then had regions ask, hey, can we put this in TV? Is it like, you know, high enough depth that we could put it in TV? And we have. You know, I've done that before and it and it and it actually worked much better than than some of the social videos did. So. Which probably becomes like a low cost TV ad, right? I mean, Super yeah. low cost. So and very authentic. So yeah, I think I think that's a whole other unexplored area of influencer marketing that uh, that hasn't really been anticipated and explored yet. I'm curious, you know, just to ask and for both of you, but maybe starting out with Karen, given your experience with some of the larger brands in the past that you've worked with. Um, how, like, how would you expect to see most brands? And this could be split up across, you know, like the DTC versus some of the bigger in-store brands and stuff. But how would you expect to see brands leverage influencers now? Would you expect to see more awareness-driven campaigns coming up on Black Friday or more highly targeted, you know, funnel-style campaigns where you're really pushing them through a specific type of optimized landing page? Uh, well, I would have hoped to have seen the first one. I would have hoped to see more awareness building and brands getting quite purposeful about picking influencers that were very aligned with their voice and their values and leveraging them to really build the brand while building awareness. But Leading sadly, up. I've seen, yeah, I have not seen that. Sadly, what I have seen is very kind of transactional drive to the landing page here's the marketing message and, you know, drive, click, 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 and, you know, affiliate links, um, which, you know, in itself isn't a bad thing if it, if it's sort of gone in with the right intention and letting the influencer create their own content as we've already talked about, but I've seen a, a lot of very kind of transactional stuff being done for Black Friday. You think that's still kind of a residual effect of people cutting budgets as a result of the coronavirus and not wanting to pay for awareness? They just need to see the return yeah. of the investment. I think they're very performance driven right now, and I get that. But I'm also just, you know, as a part of that, I don't see the holiday ads that I usually see right now. I think the whole kind of seasonal, you know, layout of 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 holiday it just isn't happening this year the way I would have normally seen it. Yeah, I've noticed you. that too, actually. I've not seen I've had to go looking almost any for, holiday ads. Yeah, I've had to go uh, looking for ads and looking for <laughs> deals versus them usually coming to me. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you're about to celebrate Thanksgiving this week. 
Um, but I feel like generally speaking for Canadians, like once Halloween's done, it's almost like a week, you know, maybe. And, and you really start to see those come around full fledged, uh, because it's like buying period, you know, you're not going to wait until like the 10th of December. Um, that's a really good point. I never really thought about it. Like, I don't think I've seen one Christmas ad. I've seen one from Burberry. That's it. Again, we're yep. literally one month and a day away. We're on the 24th of November. We're a month away from Christmas. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, because I haven't, now that you say that, I haven't, like, I, I mean, haven't seen anything. Demographically, we're spread out. So it's not like we're all in the same demographic. Same bubble or something. Yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. So up your game. Well, yeah, I actually, Jeez. I know. I literally have had to go into Facebook ads library to check out ads that are coming in. And I'll, I got a little trick on how to do that, that I'm going to show everybody. So we'll worry about that later. But, but yeah, it's sad when you have to go look for ads. <laughs> <It's sad. laughs> oh, yeah. man. Oh, that's crazy. But we'll move in, move over to the next story now, I think. And bring it back to TikTok with this next story that I have here. And it's with Charlie D'Amelio passing 100 million followers on TikTok. The first creator on TikTok to ever do so. The fast, she, she joined the platform in either late May, early June of 2019 when she created her first TikTok. She hit 1 million by, when did I have it written down here somewhere? I believe she hit 1 million about a year ago. No, 6 million about a year ago was where she was at. And now she just passed 100 million followers on TikTok on Sunday. She's the fastest person period on any social platform to hit 100 million. Like for context, it took 14 years for someone to hit 100 million on YouTube. And she did it in less than 18 months or about 18 months. I don't know the math on that, which is insane considering she's also 16 years old. And I know there's like some people who are skeptical of TikTok and what like a view on TikTok doesn't equate to the same thing as a view on YouTube, but she has legitimate movement power with her following. I have some stats here. She has um, 8.4 million subscribers on YouTube and 201 million views since November of last year, 33.6 million followers on Instagram. 4.8 4.8 million followers on Twitter with a ridiculously engaged audience. Her tweets average somewhere between 40 to 100,000 likes per, not just engages likes, that's not retweets, that's not expands of the tweet per post. And on a brand side, she did the, what's it called, the More Happy Denim Dance with Hollister back in July for her sister for that campaign. 5.5 billion views on that hashtag on TikTok since July. <laughs> old is she billion six billion 5.5 billion views on that hashtag on tiktok since july she's 16 years old her sister i believe is 19 um they're a family from connecticut her whole family is involved in tiktok now um but on the topic of her it's insane just i couldn't even especially at 16 to like do that if i had been 16 and you gave me 100 million followers like i have no i i probably would have been canceled by now but um on the topic of her hitting 100 million, I saw an interesting thread on Twitter that I wanted to run by you. It was from a venture capitalist, I believe it was a venture capitalist named Turner Novak. And he was saying that TikTok is essentially a content or a creator factory. And they handpick creators like a Charlie D'Amelio to favor her in the algorithm to help her gain more exposure. 
And I'm, I'm inclined to believe this because I listened to an old interview back, I think it was 2016 with Alex Zhu, who was the co-founder of Musical.ly, who is now TikTok's head of product, I believe was his position. And I have kind of an excerpt here um, from that interview. And this was, so it was, he did a video interview and this is a summary of the interview from a different VC named Blake, um, blanking on his last name. Um, but he says, so basically how they viewed TikTok, or they viewed, I think I've talked this on this before, on these social posts before, but it was that they viewed musically at the time, like the Americas, when the kind of global expansion was happening in like the 1700s, when people were coming from Europe to the Americas, and Europe was established, you had your social hierarchy, and the Americas were trying to attract people and sell them on the quote unquote, the American dream that you can leave Europe as a lower member of the social class, come to the Americas and rocket up the social hierarchy. But to do that, so that's how they viewed musically and the other social platforms. But to do that, you need to have those success stories of these people that have migrated to this new platform and exploded. And this was in 2016. So they were talking about Baby Ariel, who was huge on Musical.ly and still on TikTok. And where is it here? He says somewhere along, um, you make sure they successfully build an audience and well. So he's kind of alluding to the fact that this is what they're doing. He doesn't outright say we're boosting specific creators, um, but this is kind of what Turner Novak was alluding to in his tweet thread. There was some pushback, most notably from Taylor Lorenz, who's a very prominent journalist for the New York Times. I think she's great. She has a lot of stuff within society, culture, and the digital world. Um, and she was strongly, strongly against this notion that TikTok can't fix their creators. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, what do you guys think? Is this something you think that TikTok would do? I saw someone else say how in Asia and Asian culture, this is something they've done from a traditional celebrity perspective with like a lot of the K-pop bands were kind of handpicked people. They've kind of, they, they're able to manufacture celebrities. And so the idea of ByteDance doing this, which I believe they're located in China, is not a stretch. So Turnovac was saying this is something they do. Taylor Lorenz, who's very deeply entrenched in that community, saying that this is absolutely not something that they do. Uh, but I'm curious to know what you think. And even as they do that, it doesn't that takes away from what Charlie D'Amelio has accomplished, even if they gave her a little bit of an extra push within their algorithm. Like I said, she has tremendous movement power. Um, but I'd love to know what you guys think about that. I mean, it is not unheard of in the music industry to create, you know, leading boy bands, celebrities. It's not unheard of in the fashion industry to put a ton of money into branding a designer and then having them go to com from complete obscurity to being everywhere. Um, same thing with streetwear brands. So I, 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 could, I wouldn't see why not. Again, I don't think it takes away anything from her talent or her notoriety, but, and then you have to sort of wonder, is the purpose of them doing that, is it, is it, is it ethical? I don't know. It's interesting. And is it any different than brands putting marketing into something? I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah, I was first kind of thinking of like in-house influencers and stuff like that, right? I mean... It's like a brand picking you versus the actual platform itself picking you and you having a load of funds then to kind of like promote yourself to new audiences and the audiences they plan to reach. Um, but then, you know, my mind kind of even jumps to like LinkedIn and and, and platforms like that that required uh, for a certain period of time, you know, like more or less injections of certain bits of culture into relative communities that, you know, maybe are untapped or unengaged. And like there's people, I mean, 
I know for a fact, like if anybody was a LinkedIn editor, or campus editor and stuff like that, that you just got favored in the algorithm. And it's a great opportunity for those people. Like if you're trying to put yourself out there more and I guess kind of, you know, starting at the root here, she still had to put herself out there. Like she, you know, TikTok didn't come tap her on the shoulder over the, on the street one day in New York or something, Connecticut and say, Hey, like we're looking for people to just kind of, you know, spark in our algorithm. So she started it. And whether or not she got selected by, you know, whoever this group or person is at TikTok that selects their popular creators, I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense to me because if you're TikTok and you're like, how are we also supposed to create value for creators? Like looking at your user acquisition strategy and stuff like that. And then looking back on time and just thinking about in-house influencers and, and how certain brands have done that to great success and knowing that you can pretty much own the success. I mean, not like completely, right? But like, you can very much contribute to the success of certain influencers who may not have the fame. Like, I mean, I, I need to go back to this article here quickly, but um, I, I personally love it how they compare her to like <laughs> just a host of some of the biggest uh, influencers in the world to basically like on TikTok, this makes her more than twice as big as Will Smith, three times as big as The Rock. The Rock is 200 million followers on Instagram, which is nuts. And four times as big as Selena Gomez, five, five times as big as Kylie Jenner and Ariana Grande. All those people, huge on socials. But you mentioned she has 33 million followers on Instagram. That's like no slouch. So she's certainly be able to convert a lot of that audience into different channels and stuff like that. But like, I would love to read up on why you know, the person who you kind of backed in terms of her cultural relevance and how she's tied in with those circles says that, no, like it, it's not possible that they would do such a thing because like, I just, you know, lining things up, I, I agree with Karen, is it ethical? That's kind of the line that you, you have to draw and kind of ask yourself, but this is a great idea for TikTok because you, know, you, you really told that story well and kind of linked back certain points in your learnings, Jacob. It, <laughs> It's a great success. I mean, it is the TikTok success story now and one of many that are out there, but certainly one that's highly notable. Um, there's going to be other people that aren't yeah. as celebrity famous who get to 100 million too. The yeah. only thing that makes me like makes my spidey senses go up with this story is the fact that her family is now all on TikTok. Like that feels a bit Britney Spears like to me. You have a choice. I mean, like you do. But like, do you really have a choice at that point? Like, it, they're they're probably having people throw money at them, right? So you kind of like, if you're the mom or a dad or whoever it is, it's not the first time I've seen older people on TikTok or like their you know their daughters or their sons and stuff like helping a, a grandfather or somebody make like a famous TikTok account. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, leverage that because like the creative bounds in which then you have, you know, are exponential compared to like what you can do with yourself or just with your sister. Hopefully they're being supportive. Yeah, I think, I don't think they, I think like she went out once she started to gain notoriety and she like filmed videos with her family. That's when they all started to make accounts. They're um, like, who's your mom? Who's your dad? And like, I think like part of the fact where it's just like, yes, where I think where it's just interesting where whether they're boosting her in the algorithm or not, like, I do follow her on TikTok. Granted, I don't use TikTok anymore. I've been trying not to just because it's such a time suck for me. I'd waste hours of my day and I was like, I need to change this. Um, but like, she's not like she was in my algorithm a ton, which is where it's just like, I totally understand where this thought process is coming from, especially because it wasn't like a, 
a tight race. I'm pretty sure she passed 100 million and there's only two other people that have passed 50 million. So it's not like it was a tight race. So I'm like, I can understand because she's like by far and away, like the most popular person on this platform. But it's not like I saw her every 34 times I'd score on the platform. I would spend an hour and a half on TikTok and see her once, maybe twice. So it's not like I was seeing her a ton. Like I can think of more other creators I've seen more often in my feed. And I'm someone who, like I said, follows her on TikTok. So it's I like, think you need to engage too. It's not just following. True. Right. To see true. more. Mm-hmm. She's going to get one more subscriber because I'm going to follow her. I've never seen her before. So there you go. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it makes sense for her to kind of get that extra push and just seeing everything. But at the same time, like I'm not seeing her exponentially more than other people. So it's interesting to see, but um, it makes sense that they've been pushing her. But I don't know. You know, on like the positive side, I think like it's great to see that it's a woman, like a young woman um, that is like true getting this type of recognition or, or spotlight even looking at that picture, I don't, it's like an SNS or a late night or with Jimmy Fallon or something like that. She, she does have that kind of, you know, like even the smile in the picture, the kind of nearly closed eyes, like just a bit of like warmth um, and, and authenticity, but like normality uh, to her. Right. So I think that has to be said as well. Like, of course there are the celebrities and that, but it, those types of people, um, if, if you can build an audience, whether it's 100 million or even like a million or 10,000, you define a bit more of your audience rather than, and like you said, like she, she can lead a movement. <laughs> yeah. Five, five billion hashtags. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's awesome to see. Yeah. To put it into perspective, she has more followers than our current president has on Twitter. Wow. Right? Did she make any political claims? Let me oh. just double check that stat before you might have to might have to reverse on that if he's gone forward. Hold on. I don't follow him. <laughs> no, I think you're right on that one. I, I don't think they ever cracked 100. Yeah. Nope. 88.9 million. Wow. Hopefully trending down. See, now I would have. <laughs> You know, maybe they, maybe the Biden campaign should have sponsored her TikTok channel. That would have just done it right there. I wouldn't be surprised though, too. Like, I mean, you mentioned she's 16. 16, maybe 17 at this point, but I think she's 16. You gotta, I mean, like if I was her parents, I'd be guarding her from any sort of political statement. It's just like that opens you up to a whole other world. Yep. Um, Nice. And I'm, I mean, let's just be happy that things ended the way they did. But uh, 2024? 20 um probably 200 million followers that's encroaching on like half the u.s population yeah like uh so yeah this could be huge i mean she could be the next president (laughs) no i think you need to be don't you need to be 32 maybe i'm wrong uh, yeah there's a this is the problem with canadians talking about u.s politics (laughs) (laughs) it's like if you have good hair i mean Right. And you can do yoga. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Does anyone have any other stories or is that it for for this week, this month's episode? I have a question for all of you. So what predictions do you have for social for next year, for 2021? I, you know, I took a look at your article, um, read through it. I I tend to agree like a couple of, you know, the things that you mentioned in there. I've been privy and, you know, lucky 
fortunate enough to talk to some of the brands and seeing that sort of transition of moving in-house with both media spend, influencer activation, uh, just generally like organic content activation and, and trying to move away from agencies of record. I, and if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I think that's pointing towards agencies being really savvy, but unfortunately the time's catching up with them because whether you're a small business or like, you know, massive CPG, at what point do you realize you're kind of losing out on either margin uh, or cost of acquisition and those types of things? Since if you're an influencer network, and particularly as an agency, if you have a social arm, then like influencers become your high margin uh, type of service. It, it typically would take a little less time than actually running socials. And once you have certain amount of relationships, you don't mind... You no longer need to worry about the authenticity or potential alignment around those campaigns. You can strictly focus on like how many campaigns are you pushing out for these brands. So I think quickly brands can start to lose control and they probably notice that over the years and you can start to retain more control over the process and start to track more by implementing, you know, new innovative strategies in-house. And so I would say, you know, my predictions would be a number of new tools that aren't necessarily public, that are probably more internal. Uh, across you know some of the biggest teams, whether it be agencies like Omnicom um, or the PNGs of the world, and uh, I mean past that, I, I think that you'll see a continuing rise for creators. Um, it's COVID, right? Like it, it could be a full year until or more until there's a vaccine, and so like with what that might bring in terms of where the, the buying power is, where consumer attention is, um, if it remains and continues to swing on digital. Uh, so yeah, more creators, more people partnering with brands, um, and brands leveraging organic content channels a lot more. I think that, you know, maybe one other thing to add there is, has there been, I, how often do they update rules around like ads and partnerships? Because like, I, I think there's now becoming so many gray areas that that maybe could be another thing that you see come out in 2021 or potentially 2022. Um, probably going to be some stuff around the first party data, as you mentioned in your article there, Karen. But mm -hmm. I would wonder how they might tighten up on regulations because, I mean, Instagram, it's still happening. And that's been, you know, they've had some rules in place for quite a while. So or enforce the ones that already exist. I don't think there's or been that. a lot of enforcement. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I think would do a lot for the industry. Like if if it was put in place and and... Yeah, people were held accountable. Yeah. How about you, Jacob? Any predictions? Yeah, I mean, just reading your article, I really like the one around virtual influencers. That's something that like I've talked, like the podcast that's out this week is with uh, Eric Dahan, who's the co-founder of Open Influences and Influencer Agency. And him and I talked about virtual influencers a little bit. This topic that's come up on this, these uh, the social report episodes a couple times. Um, and I just think the ability you can control a virtual influencer is just going to be appealing to brands. No controversies. They're never going to burn out all these different, they can be anywhere at any point in time in the snap of the fingers. They could be in Canada today, Dubai tomorrow, back in Los Angeles the next day, because you don't have to physically be anywhere to create with these influencers. I think that's going to be something we're going to see. I think authentic content is going to be something we're going to see more of. And by authentic content, I mean like with when COVID hit, we saw brands scrambling to put out content because they all couldn't be in the same spot physically. So producing content from a big brand on a Zoom call became acceptable. And I think we're just going to see that. And that's another thing TikTok has done well is it's very much raw, real content. Like it's not as highly produced. That type of content doesn't perform as well. So as consumers, we're starting to become more and more 
comfortable consuming not high quality content. I think that's something we're gonna see more of in 2021. And then I think this might even be beyond 2021. We've kind of talked about it a little bit on this podcast, a little bit last podcast, but with kind of all these social platforms starting to become the same and kind of starting to become like a little bit of burnout with each platform, is starting to see these more micro social platforms like Cherry that we talked about last month start to pop up. And I talked to, I believe it was Troy Asanoff on this podcast, and he was saying how social media started separately all these different websites you had to go to depending on your interest and then social media brought everything together and we'll start to see that cycle go back around the other side now and everyone start to spread back out again as people get more tired of the just the generalized social platform so i think that's something we i'm not 100 percent behind that prediction but i think that's something we could start to see a little bit more of um do you think the the irony of you know, authentic content rising while virtual influencers also rising is, you know, it feels like the virtual influencers, the creators of those virtual influencers, they need to make them look authentic. So in a way, they're kind of trying to rough them up a bit, right? Like make them seem more real. Um, I Emotional wonder, and things like that type thing? Yeah, too, not too polished so that they they feel real. So I'm wondering if we're going to see, will we see a virtual TikTok creator? I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure like little Michaela, who we've talked about 2.8 million or whatever, she has like her own music video. So her doing like video content is definitely not out of the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just one other thing, I think, uh, you know, in the spirit of us talking about sort of same sameness, uh, with all of the social platforms, I, I put something in the Slack to the the Truefin folks, but the uh, the new product experimentation group at at Facebook dropped a new little uh, social platform experiment, and anyone can sign up for it. It's egg e gg, and it's basically a way to create almost zine like freeform pages. So if anyone wants to check that out. Um, could be something cool if you're looking for something different. Yeah, tool to unlock some creativity. I think it may be only US yeah, uh, you're right. availability right now, though. Yeah, you're right. Because I was like eager, I saw know. that, and I was like, oh, I want to try it. And mm. a couple of attempts, and then I finally saw the US only. I'm like, oh, you would. There's ways to get around that. VPN. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, thanks to both of you. Do you guys want to give a quick plug to where people can find you? I'm Bond Jane Bond on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me by spelling my first and last name, Scott Bertie, on pretty much any social platform. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time out of your day to be on today's podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Scott and Karen on social media. Make sure everything's linked in the show notes or down below so you can find them along with links to all of the stories that we talked about today. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at, at my social life podcast or YouTube by searching my social life. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.